My name is Roger Clark, and I'm your host today for this episode of the Four Score and Seven Project. This production is of the New Majority Foundation. Today, our subject is homelessness. We're very fortunate to have as our guest, Justin Wallen of J. Wallen Opinion Research Services. Welcome. Justin, uh, tell us a little bit about what you do at uh, J. J. Wallen Research. So opinion research is just talking to people, finding out what they think, and seeing if we can influence that thought or behavior through messaging. Um, and it's, it underlies everything, so marketing, public policy, politics. There's two big categories, qualitative and quantitative. Qualitative is usually focus groups or a conversation like this. And it's really finding out what I don't know. Uh, and that informs subsequent quantitative research, which most people are familiar with. Most people are familiar with polling, presidential polling, gubernatorial polling, things like that. But whether it's for political or it's for a consumer brand, toothpaste, whatever it might be, it all follows pretty much the same format. You have a set of people, which is a representative sample that allows us to use statistics so that we know that it accurately reflects the sentiments of a target population. And we literally talk to them. We have a script, we have interviewers, uh, we talk to several hundred people, sometimes it's thousands, depending on the product. And that allows us to get extraordinarily accurate information and to predict behavior as well. So there's a lot of talk about that when election times come around, because folks in my line of business are very public, right? So there's big failures. What, uh, and that's fun to talk about. What, uh, what isn't seen so much is consistent success. And actually, the polling industry is pretty healthy. So how do you go about identifying the demographic sample that you want to use? Sure. Uh, a best way to talk about this is in the context of California, because we have one of the best resources in the United States and indeed the world. Uh, in the U.S., we have voter files. So when you register to vote, you fill out the card or go online, whatever it is, you put down information about yourself. And it's a legal document. Mm -hmm. um, people take it seriously. That information has your name and your address, uh, has a phone number, uh, usually has an email these days. About 50% of them have an email. Uh, that is extraordinary information. And then over time, your behavior is tracked. We track in, in California when you vote. Uh, we know what political party you choose to align with. Uh, that behavior, that voting behavior, allows us to, uh, to determine if you're likely to vote in the future, rather than just ask people, which right. is imperfect, right? Behavior is the best predictor of future performance. Um, so that's, that's what we start with, this voter file. And then we research uh, the right number of people from the right amounts of demographics that accurately reflects the, the, the population. So if it's all of California voters, I'm going to have a certain amount of men, women, Democratic voters, Republican voters, independent voters from the different geogra uh, geogra geographic regions throughout the state, uh, age groups, ethnicities, and so forth. And when you, when you have those right proportions, you get it exact, your accuracy is going to be typically within about 3%. Uh, of the final outcome, which is an amazing, what we call margin of error. Um, people a lot of time in public say, well, you know, the poll said it was going to be 51% and it ended up being 49%, so it was wrong. No, it was accurate. <laughs> it was within three <laughs> points. And that's hard. That kind of accuracy is extremely difficult. Uh, I think find any other industry that you can, you can forecast the future with that degree of, of consistency and accuracy. 
uh, over time, very hard to do. Well, so. Wall Street would love to have that accuracy. <laughs> We'd all love to know what the near future holds uh, so far as the market is concerned. Absolutely, and, and that's one of the things about the, the market that's fascinating is they work with imperfect information. Uh, they don't have something as accurate as this, this voter file. Right? They have big data which approximates these things. And it's very sexy to talk about big data, and that's actually my background. I did global uh, strategy and marketing and tech. Um, wonderful things in big data but it's not as accurate as this funny little simple thing we have, this voter file. So, so do you uh, then develop questionnaires and submit the questionnaires? Um, yeah. And, and then uh, let, me, let me ask you, uh, how do you develop, decide what questions and how you phrase, because words can make a big difference on the response. Uh, how do you address those kinds of issues in your research? So there's two big categories of research. One is basically academic research. Uh, it's often fielded by nonprofits, whether it's colleges and so forth. These institutions strive to not have bias in their questions, typically. They're trying to have a, a question that doesn't influence people one way or another. Um, most of all other research is fielded with the intent of seeing how people respond to biased questions. That's mm -hmm. the goal. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, uh, it, when we start the poll, we ask questions that are not intended to elicit bias. They're intended to establish a baseline of understanding. We're not trying to put people in a box and, and, and you know, get used words to influence their thought or behavior. Mm -hmm. So we establish a baseline with that, and that way we're very similar to the academic research. But then things change, because we're tasked with eliciting an outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, our goal is to change things whether it's an election or whatever it might be. So then we have a battery of questions uh, that can be positive, they can be negative. Usually they're a combination of the two. We ask some positive things about it, we ask some negative things about it. Then we, we pose different uh, opposing and, and supportive arguments to see uh, if you can, you can deflect those arguments. And then we retest and we retest and we retest. So we're a little bit different than most academic stuff because we will pose pointed questions. And sometimes uh, we will be accused of doing what's called a push-pull because those questions are pointed. And uh, folks who are new to uh, this kind of research will look at it and say, well, you're asking this question. It's very loaded. Mm -hmm. um, it's not unbiased. Well, yeah, that's the entire point. Mm -hmm. And in a, in a, a well-versed poll, you're going to have points from both sides that are very pointed and very loaded. And it's using arguments from both, uh, both those people. Um, both those sides, uh, and in that way, that allows us to get an accurate, an accurate perspective. But it's very different. Well, do, are there any type of? Uh, it, it sounds in terms of uh, the input, uh, and then we're looking for an output, uh, and the output, like you mentioned, has a certain predictive uh, point to it. Uh, ideally, within three percent, one right. way or the other. Uh, are there algorithms, computer-driven algorithms, that help you in this analysis? Yeah, absolutely. It's all underlined by statistics. So there's um, any number of programs that, that are used for this, things called SPSS, and, and um, they are all using math that's been around for, well, it's been around for hundreds of years, but the application has been around for about 60 or 70 years. So it's extremely well vetted. It works very, very well, provided that you've done certain things right on the upfront. It's not unlike a building. Um, you know, if you if you build it in sand and the foundation is right. no good, it's going to come tumbling down. Sure. Um, and the same thing goes with this, especially with math. And it, it, this is kind of in the weeds, but sometimes you'll see some faulty research done that is, they try to compensate for the faulty foundations by expanding the sample size. So in California, you really only need to interview 800 people to get an accurate perspective of these millions and millions of people, which seems remarkable. 
But provided that your sample is accurate, provided you're talking to people the right way, you're reaching them the right way, you know, on, on these, <laughs> for example, or by email, the way people prefer to be reached, uh, speaking to them in language, making sure you're stratified, you're gonna get accurate results. A lot of folks don't end up doing that um, for a variety of different reasons. One, it's costly. Um, and two, sometimes they just don't fully understand the craft of, of, of polling. So what'll end up happening is you'll have a, a sample size of 2,000, 3,000 and more. Uh, and the idea is, well, we have much larger sample sizes, much more accurate. And actually it's not. Um, the way the math works is it actually compounds the problem. So in recent years, uh, Americans have got uh, familiar with various polling data, particularly in national elections. It, and it says some state is going to go this percentage in favor of this candidate, and, and another state will say percentage for this particular candidate. And over the past couple of election cycles, those are often wildly inaccurate. Where have those polls gone wrong? Uh, in the methodology. So uh, s nationwide, for the most part, they've been accurate with the exception of some partisan research. So there are uh, surveys that are uh, uh, paid for by highly partisan uh, organizations. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but in some cases, those polls uh, are framed too much through the partisan lens and they don't accurately uh, delve into the other side. So you don't really see what, what the likelihood of the outcome is going to be. It's really just kind of saying, well, if, if all this happens in a perfect world and people are only bombarded with this bit of la uh, uh, language from a particular perspective, then what happens? Well, <laughs> it's an unrealistic perspective of what happens. So that to your early point of how do you craft the questions, this is important in accurately forecasting what's going to happen. And that's what, what I'm tasked with. Sometimes I have to go back to a client and give them bad news. Sure. You're not going to win. <laughs> you know? And that's, that's tough, but uh, that's the job. National polls, for the most part, were pretty accurate um, when you consider the margin of error. And what we saw largely was it was an extraordinarily tight race, this past race. Right. Um, and anyone who said something different was taking the liberty of interpreting uh, with some largesse. Uh, sure. You know, when you've, you've got someone at 50.5%, at, at the other person's at 49.5%, you have no way of determining who's likely to win. No one's ahead. You know, someone has a slight lead. No, they don't. They're statistically identical. There's absolutely no lead. And so a lot of that comes back out with the folks who, and, and I'm fortunate enough to be on, uh, on TV from time to time talking what people uh, talk, think and, and what voters think, it is very human for a presenter to look at it and say, well, there's a two-point gap. Someone's got a little lead. But they don't. And it's, it's, it's very hard to overcome that human nature to really look for something that isn't there. Uh, so that was part of the problem. There were real problems in statewide research. And I, just a little bit of cocktail chatter. Uh, if you're looking at a poll and you're talking about it, and that poll starts with, are you registered to vote? You are free to mock that poll from now until eternity, because it's wrong. Mm -hmm. They're not using the voter file. They're using consumer files. Mm -hmm. So the, from the very beginning, their data is going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll be right, but the likelihood is they're going to be wrong more often than not. Well, that's fascinating. Well, well, homelessness. Um, I, I know you've done a lot of research into the homeless issue. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background of the research and the polling that you've done on that particular issue? Yeah, um, I think what, what folks uh, in this region may be most familiar with was uh, there was a 
legislation here in Los Angeles about prohibiting uh, camping from public places, your parks, overpasses, near schools, and right. so forth. Yeah. Uh, my research uh, formed the the strategy that that drove that uh, toward its its ultimately being passed. But my research in homelessness started about ten years ago, uh, and it actually started from. Quant uh, qualitative research, what I was talking about earlier, the finding out what we don't know. It was a political race. It was a, um, uh, a campaign for a district attorney in Orange County. And when you have budget, you like to start with these focus groups. Let's just start talking about issues that people are talking about. Find what, what matters to you. What bothers you? What do you like? What do you don't like? Literally questions like that. And I usually serve people dinner and I've got some you know, video cameras around and, and we talk for a couple hours. In the course of those focus groups, people started talking about there's more homeless. You know, I, I, I see them on my, my way to work. I see them on the way to school. Uh, I was harassed by someone. I can't lock my garage. And this was across the entire spectrum of Orange County. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in poor neighborhoods only. It was in wealthy neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And that theme, we suddenly realized there may be something here. Mm -hmm. So we started to ask questions in our benchmark quantitative poll that focused on homelessness to see if there really was something there. Mm -hmm. you know, what do people think about it? Is it a problem? Has it gotten worse recently? And we found out it was a huge problem. And that conversation was being echoed by everybody. Mm -hmm. And when we quantified issues that people wanted to see their electeds deal uh, address, whether it was their city council or their county supervisors or the DA or you know, people who even arguably don't have purview over homelessness like a district attorney, mm -hmm. everyone was considered responsible for it from the legislature right on down. And that allowed us to craft a campaign that focused on that, uh, on a very specific issue. There was a lot of camping in the, in the riverbed there. And we won that campaign against an incumbent with no reason really who to be removed. <laughs> there was no scandal against the existing district attorney. Um, and I have nothing against him. It's, uh, my job is to, to work for my candidate. But uh, we won that based on homelessness. What purview does a DA have for homelessness? You have the purview that you assume, and that's what he did. So from then, we started to incorporate it in, you know, we started obviously testing it in everything. So we built up a, a significant book of knowledge about the ebb and flow of, of homelessness in, in voters' minds. Um, and there, you know, there was a point in the mid-2000s when basically the homeless population jumped by 50% over the course of five years. And that's what created well, What the years uh, are you talking about? It was around 2005 is when really things started to, to hop uh, to about 2010. Hold, hold that thought because I want to come back to that because that, that's significant as well. Uh, but, but let me just kind of add a footnote to uh, what you mentioned because we have a lot of issues uh, that are troubling people today. Voters, citizens, uh, people who never find their way down to the polling booth or vote uh, remotely. Uh, amongst all those issues, where does homelessness rate as the most troubling for people? It's always in the top two, and it's usually first. So whether you ask that statewide, or you ask it in, in Los Angeles, you ask it in Orange County, you ask it in Kern County, it is always in the top two. With rare exception, I mean, there are some communities that it's not an issue. Well, what's the other that's in competition with it? Uh, uh, well, so the funny thing about the top issues, there's three. It's kind of what I call the holy trinity of issues <laughs> that are normally in the top three. And when something changes, you know something's very, very unusual going on. So normally in any particular year, any particular decade, it's going to be public safety, jobs in the economy, and education. Mm -hmm. Those are going to be the top three, and mm -hmm. they jostle for position. Mm -hmm. But over the past decade, that's changed. Mm -hmm. um, two things have typically kind of hopped in and out. 
homelessness has become prevalent. It is mm -hmm. absolutely dominating everything. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on you know the weather, uh, drought will come up. I mean, there mm -hmm. are periods where it's really been messaged and people are aware of it. Today, consistently, um, we find two things. Uh, one has you know, been going on for a decade, and that's homelessness. The other one is very much of the past uh, 18 months, and that is cost of living. That's the, so this jobs in the economy has mm -hmm. transitioned into cost of living, which is a subtle but distinct difference, mm -hmm. and it's an important difference. Mm -hmm. What is a new issue that has been coming up over the past three years, and I don't know if it's going to end up in the top three, but it is usually in the top five, mm -hmm. which means it's a big thing, mm -hmm. is housing that regular people can afford. Right. Entrepreneurs, blue-collar workers, white-collar workers, professionals. People who hold a job, usually both parties hold a job, husband and wife, husband and husband, whatever it might be. You know, a couple have, both have jobs. By any standard of the American dream, that means you should own property. Mm -hmm. That's what we grow up thinking. Mm -hmm. It's not the case. The, the, the American dream doesn't exist in California, for most Californians. And when I have focus groups and I talk to them about this, because this is something we dig into quite a bit because it's been a burgeoning issue, we have these successful professionals making good money by any measure who no longer consider purchasing a home as a life goal while they live in California. We'll buy one when we retire and move to Oregon or Arizona or Florida. But in California, to them, it's just simply an expense. It's not actually, it's a rental expense. It, it's, it's tragic. <laughs> it's it, well, you, you, I want to come back to that one statement because um, the point you made is like a very cold shower. Um, that the classic American dream no longer exists in California. Here is the state for most of its existence was considered to be the great American experiment. If you wanted to achieve your American dream, go west, yeah. go to California. And, that, and what you're saying is that that is no longer true. It's no longer true. Um, it is, uh, California is increasingly the state of uh, and this is a, it tends to be a progressive phrase. I'm not saying it, not that I'm standing on one side or the other, I'm not saying it in a progressive fashion, but it is, tr it is becoming more and more a state of the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. and, and it is tragic because California was the land of opportunity that you could go and make mm -hmm. a living mm -hmm. and you could make something uh, out of nothing, mm -hmm. wherever you came from, mm -hmm. um, simply by hard work. It was the American dream paragon mm -hmm. and it's, it just doesn't exist anymore. As you were talking, and you mentioned 2005, I still want to come back to that year and, and what triggered that and why suddenly the, the, the jump in homelessness and what that was related to. But you made me think about um, in the 1930s, uh, the Great Depression. Right. There were Hoovervilles. Remember Hoovervilles <laughs> where yeah. quote, what we now call homeless people would camp. Uh, we knew about the phrase in those days was hobos, uh, I think is what they call and people would be traveling from trains and of course then there's the John you know, Steinbeck, Great Grapes of Wrath and all that sort of stuff which was you know people leaving the Dust Bowl uh, during the great drought in, in the Oklahoma and that area coming to California uh, looking for a better life, those types of things. Um, and that was in the middle of the Great Depression uh, and we've had our economic challenges in the last 20 years as well, uh, but nothing like the Great right. Depression. Um, and so you, for a moment, kind of digress, just if you would, just to give this some historical perspective, because so many of us 
you know, grew up being taught about how terrible things were. 36% unemployment in the United States in the 1930s. People couldn't feed themselves. Uh, how close we were to having a total meltdown um, of the uh, of the economy as well as the society. Um, but pegging it on the homelessness issue in 1930s compared to the homelessness now, yeah. do we have as a percentage of a people uh, a percentage have more homeless now than we did during the Great Depression and the era of the Hoovervilles? That's a terrific question. I, I, I actually don't know if there's more homeless now than there were then, um, but I do know that there is a parallel because um, there were people who uh, you know farmland was destroyed. Uh, with the, the droughts and the dust storms and so forth. Um, obviously the stock market had crashed. There, there was a great economic uh, uh, tragedy. But there was another big issue at the time too, right? There's the close of World War I. And with that, with those large groups of homeless, there were lots of veterans. And as you walk through you know, our nation's capital, you, know, you can see placards of where their people were camped, you know, what is now the mall. Mm -hmm. Protesting. I don't have benefits. I don't have, you know, I, I went and fought in the war and now I don't have a leg or an arm or so forth and I, 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 I'm not able to work and suddenly work wasn't av available even if they could work. Mm -hmm. So that was a significant proportion of the homeless population and the transient population at the time. Um, which, which, if we could fairly characterize that, and correct me where I'm off point, but that seems like an e economic driver. There's just no jobs. Yeah. If people want to work, but no jobs for them, hence. Correct, absolutely correct. Um, and the proportion, the different drivers, but the proportion of homeless that in California who are veterans is about 30%. This is in the 1930s? Now. Now. Yeah, mm -hmm. which you know we have had economic ups and downs, mm -hmm. but we have some things that are very, very different now. We have safety nets. We have safety nets for veterans specifically. I mean, we have, we have a pretty complex fabric. It's still possible. Mm -hmm. to fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. But we are missing something, a very big something. And, and, and as I, I, I talk to people, uh, actually in focus groups, uh, this comes to the fore, what people will remember. Didn't we have, uh, and there, we're missing a network of mental health institutions. And those mental health institutions had um, a widget to them. They had, a, they had something that allowed them to, uh, up until you know, the 70s, uh, to enforce uh, people getting better. And this, this was a network of you know, religious institutions, public institutions, and private institutions. Uh, and they were memorialized by things that went wrong, right? One flew over the cuckoo's nest. <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. And, and things did go wrong because there are big institutions and things go wrong with big institutions. Um, and at the time, you know, the regulations weren't quite right. But you know, uh, America threw the baby out with the bathwater. And all that closed down. You no longer had the ability to remove people from the street who were experiencing dramatic mental issues or alcohol abuse or substance abuse or a combination of them and put them in these, these institutions to heal or uh, if they were unable to heal then they would simply be there under, under care so they don't do harm to themselves or others, that went away. And we no longer have that ability. And of course, every state is different, and every jurisdiction is different. But you, you cannot force someone to get help. What happened? Because you, and you referred to the 1970s. We were perking along <laughs> up until the 1970s. What was yeah. it in the 1970s that uh, uh, caused us to take the other road? Legislation uh, that you cannot. You know, people have the freedom to uh, 
to make the choice of how they want to live, even if that choice is, is not for their own best health mm. or others. So you have that freedom to be homeless. Uh, you have that freedom. You know, we driving to the studio in downtown LA. You you go through or nearby Skid Row, and uh, you see the detritus and the tragedy of, of souls um, that aren't long for this world. You know the lifespan of folks who are at that point is not not that long. Um, those people uh, are human beings. Most people in California and indeed the United States know someone who has experienced homelessness at some point or another, family, friend, relative, right. maybe themselves. Um, people know this, uh, but there's, there's nothing you can do with, with folks who are in, in a state of crisis because you have to convince them that it is in their best interest to come off the street, go into a shelter. You know, today's, uh, there's an argument being made that uh, you have to have uh, full permanent housing and full wraparound services and so forth in order to, to convince people to get off the, off the streets. But um, you, you can't force people. You can't remove people. So I, I suspect there were probably some court decisions yep. uh, buried in here at some, at some point beginning in the 1970s. So we go from um, an era where there was some compulsive authority. Um, and although we had nurse, nurse ratchets to worry about, I suppose, I don't mean to belittle nurses, I just take it because it's the classic image of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Uh, but it was a hopefully more compassionate uh, removal uh, than abusive removal. Uh, but now we've lost that uh, beginning in the 1970s, and now it's an issue of persuasion, not compulsion, if I follow you. That's correct. Your statement. And there are limits on persuasion because when you, you know, we think about this in terms of persuasion. In, in my world, I mean, that's my job is persuading people. Mm -hmm. But we persuade people of sound mind. People may be angry, they may be upset, they may be happy, you know, they, have, they have emotional and real life problems. People on the street are dealing with a, a whole environment that I, I don't think most of us can really comprehend. I certainly can't. Mm -hmm. you know, they're dealing with mental health issues, systemic, deep, serious things. Mm -hmm. uh, they're dealing with substance abuse, usually that is you know, self-medication, all these kinds of things. And all that is mixed together. And then they're dealing with disease. They're dealing with all of this stuff. They're dealing with the, the violence that exists on, on the streets. Diseases, medieval diseases are coming back. You don't convince people in that state of mind. So coming back to the comparison to the 1930s again, I'm, I'm getting the sense that in the 1930s uh, with the Hoovervilles, as they called them in those days, uh, that that was uh, economic driven, I've never heard, maybe it's because I haven't come across the sources, but I haven't heard that the homelessness problem in the 30s was driven by substance abuse issues right. or by mental health issues, which is a, a big difference compared Massive. to today. Yeah, and, and it is different. And, 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 and yes, there are people who are homeless who are there because there were issues economically that forced them into it. They had a, a crisis that you know they didn't have the the, the ability to, to withstand, and suddenly they're homeless or they're you know they're living in a motel. There is a proportion. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But it is not the majority. It's mm -hmm. not like the '30s. It's mm -hmm. um, it's a very very different situation. Um, people are are there because they are in in need of care. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the traditional safety net, the economic safety nets that exist and are pretty significant, especially in California, uh, are not adequate. Uh, 
they will not solve that problem. Well, coming back to 2005, uh, that's a year that you mentioned, uh, suddenly we started to see a huge uptick. Uh, and it uh, sounds to me that it wasn't just a gradual rise like the tide might be coming, it's more like a tsunami came in. Uh, what happened at that time? There's a, a lot of different theories about it. And, and to my knowledge, there's no definitive uh, answer to that. Uh, all we know is that it expanded very, very quickly uh, over the course of you know, five to ten years. It expanded you know, by 50% very, very quickly. Boom. Just immediate huge expansion. And then it's been expanding by 10% you know, a year, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, I think we have uh, 160,000 uh, homeless in California. Uh, what, what percentage of the total national homeless population? 30%. It's funny, 30% is a recurring number. Mm -hmm. California has 30% of, of, uh, of the nation's homeless. Mm -hmm. One state, 30% uh, of our homeless are veterans. There's a significant proportion, and the, the purport, it's escaping me now, right. uh, are also people who have been in crisis, people who have been in uh, our, our, our prison system. Uh, and have uh, been released. Uh, you have people who have been released through the natural flow, uh, and then you have people who had accelerated release. Right? We've had uh, prison reform uh, intended to address our overcrowded prisons, which is a problem mm -hmm. in America and a problem in California. And one of those uh, solutions to address overcrowding was to release people deemed less of a threat to society. Well, how do you define less of a threat to society? Um, mm -hmm. If if they don't have uh, a path towards a job and, and security and a home and these sorts of things, which they really don't. I mean, our, our, mm -hmm. our, uh, our, uh, uh, our process for taking people out of the prison system, um, regardless of, of how we feel, you know, it, this should be punitive or so forth, mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't set people up for success. <laughs> it doesn't. And a lot of those folks are ending up on the streets. Well, you know, it's a good point, um, and, and you kind of uh, suggested uh, the law of unintended consequences is at play here because three strikes and you're out law is very well known, uh, intended to make the public safer, and that ended up resulting in many more individuals in our prisons uh, without the construction of new prisons to accommodate them, which then led to uh, federal courts declaring that the overpopulation of the prisons was cruel and unusual punishment, and there was an injunction saying you've got to reduce the population in the prisons, and therefore we ended up having these early releases, um, and so many of those people now have ended up on the streets, hence causing another public safety issue, if I understand yeah. the sequence of all of that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, if this was a natural economic progression, you would see proportions that are similar to proportions in you know, non-homeless life. You would see a similar proportion of women and children who are homeless. Uh, any proportion of women and children who are homeless is too much, right? <laughs> so let's right. just get that out of the way. Right. It, it, you know, it, it, if it's a small proportion, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying that proportions matter. And you do not have the same proportion of women and, and children who are on the streets. It's very much a male thing. Uh, there are women who are on the streets, but it's much, much smaller. It's not proportionate to their, their proportion as part of the population. Same thing with children. Um, and that, I think, speaks directly to the, the fact that this really is not something that's economically driven because it doesn't affect uh, pro uh, demographics in a proportionate fashion. Um, it just doesn't. Uh, we, we have a lot of men in crisis on our streets, and it is, it, it's creating massive issues. 
Can, can you kind of delve into that uh, a, a bit more? Uh, why aren't the genders proportionally represented, represented in the homeless population? What, what are the social theories behind that? You know, the, and, and I, I'm, now I'm getting out of my element because it really is, is um, there are folks better suited who, who understand uh, you know, the human mind uh, from a medical standpoint, from a psychological standpoint. Um, but I, I think it is fair to say that uh, men are disproportionately uh, parts of those populations that I had mentioned earlier. Veterans, uh, they're disproportionately part of the prison population. Um, and I think you know, traditionally men have not had uh, <laughs> an adequate resource for dealing with what goes on here when things go wrong. And men typically uh, self-medicate, whether it's drink or drugs or whatever it might be, mm -hmm. it, is, it is typically what men do. That's, uh, but uh, you know, going and, and seeking mental health is not something that is typically done. So percentage-wise of the homeless population, uh, what would the percentage of women and children be? You know, I think children is, is around 2%. Uh, Forgive me if I'm, if I'm not accurate there, but it's remarkably small. Um, and women I don't recall offhand, but it's also very, very small. It's, um, and again, it, it, if you look at the voting population, there's more women in, uh, in California than, than men. Uh, if this was an economic issue, theoretically, there'd be more women on the street than men. Right. Um, because it would, it would affect them proportionally. But that's not the situation. There's something very, very different going on here that's disproportionately affecting men. 30% of veterans. Yeah. Um, and veterans uh, do, in theory, have a safety net uh, through the Veterans Administration. Uh, why isn't the VA catching these issues? Um, it, it's, it, it, it has not done a good job of that. Um, the VA has, has failed on, on publicly on, on some things in serving you know, right. our, our, our nation's heroes. Um, they're a big organization. They're slow to change, uh, well-intentioned. But um, you know, ca uh, treating our, our homeless veterans is not something that they've done, done well. Uh, interestingly enough, that is actually a, a messaging point that we use in, in a lot of uh, military districts, certainly in San Diego when someone's running for, for federal office, of uh, it's time to, to focus uh, national resources on improving the VA so it actually helps our veterans who are on the street and gets them a path towards, uh, towards health. Um, people really recognize that as an issue, um, but it, it just, you know, unfortunately, it's it's uh, it's failed. Well, this is also, I suspect, where a lot of these issues start to intertwine. So um, most people are familiar uh, with uh, veterans experiencing stress, particularly in a post-combat situation with a PTSD. Um, that's one thing, but then we're, if we're talking about self-medicating, we're talking about the uh, more complicated uh, mental issues that it leads to, and also the substance abuse issues. It, it, it ends up being a Gordian knot of, of multiple issues, um, which is, to put it mildly, is uh, very complex to deal with. It's extremely complex, and, that's, and, and I think one of the things that voters see is that this is a nuanced issue. Uh, it is not something that has a simple solution. It just doesn't. Uh, but it needs a number of different things. And I think voters, have, interestingly enough, we, we see a lot of money and we talk a lot of, about money that's being spent on the homeless issue. You know, here in LA, billions of dollars, literally, of taxpayer funds. Um, voters are okay with that. 
they're okay with that. They're okay with taxing themselves. They're okay with spending the money. What they're not okay with is they haven't seen results. Mm-hmm. So all of that money's being spent, and they're not seeing a change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they it, it is it is easy to look at it and think, well, voters are going to want some kind of a uh, a law and order approach. Let's mm-hmm. take the folks off the street. Let's arrest them. Let's force them to do this, and let's mm-hmm. be very heavy-handed. Um, people do feel that use of, of some kind of force, I don't mean violent force, but, mm-hmm. but imposing the will of taking someone and getting them the help that they need is, mm-hmm. is necessary. Mm-hmm. But there's a tremendous amount of compassion um, for people experiencing this issue. People want to see those folks helped, and they're willing to spend the money on it, but uh, they do not trust what comes out of their elected officials or candidates right now. Uh, I don't think you can win an election based on, on homelessness anymore because mm-hmm. you, most candidates simply aren't credible. Um, all of this money has been spent and the problem literally is getting worse, both statistically and what we can see every day. Mm-hmm. We know viscerally it's getting worse. The numbers tell us factually it is, it confirms mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So what's going wrong? Mm-hmm. And I think voters recognize, I know they recognize from the research that I've done, that what's missing is this network of, of facilities, of an organization that is, has the capacity and the capability and is allowed to take folks in, in crisis, put them in, a, in, a, in some kind of organization, and gets them the care they need, and hopefully gets them cured. Um, and the reality is it, it is it is tough. You're going to have high failure rates. Mm-hmm. You're going to spend a massive amount of money on this. We are. And a lot of it's going to fail, and a lot of people are going to go back in time and time and time again. Voters are okay with that. It's an imperfect uh, situation, but they're not okay with... Um, just letting people live out this tragic existence on the streets.